on episode number 797 of CXO Talk. We're discussing AI and public policy with Lord Tim Clement Jones of the House of Lords. My guest co-host is Q. Harrison Terry, the chief growth officer for the Mark Cuban companies. Yo, what's up? I'm glad to be here. And yeah, it's going to be an exciting show. I'm in Israel today, so I've only got 30 minutes, but I'm excited to actually have a few conversations with Lord Tim Clement Jones. And with that, Lord Tim Clement Jones, welcome back to CXO Talk. Really good to be back, Michael, and good to be with you and Q, and very nice to meet Q as well. Tim, tell us about your focus at the House of Lords as a member of the House of Lords. It's something that has really grown because I started off by being uh, a digital or the digital spokesperson for my party in the House of Lords uh, a few years ago. But now, uh, as you know, everything has become digital, I've now become uh, and the government have created a special department for science, innovation and technology. What I try and have to do is cover the full range of uh, innovation and technology so that is uh, not just AI and all the tech around that. It's also life sciences, the application of, uh, of new technology to health uh, and other aspects. So it's, it's, a, it's a broad brief. You're working on bills that are regulating uh, some really ambiguous technologies related to our, our future, right? Like, I mean, AI is, is a big deal. I mean, you've done it. We've obviously played a part. You've seen with the... I think GDPR was really good because it taught marketers like myself, you know, what we could and couldn't do and where to place data. And it gave us some standards, but marketing had existed for that. Uh, I don't know, like decade, we'd been doing online marketing for decades. It just hadn't been as big as it is today with AI. We're literally governing something that is in its infancy. And would you give your kid training wheels before it could even uh, get out the womb? And I feel like, you know, I'm seeing that argument being brought up a ton, especially here in the U.S. My question for you is, how do you even conceptualize something and, 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 and the impact that it's going to have on society in the next few decades? What you have to do is start from the risk aspect. You, We don't really know. And so what you have to do is try and get some guardrails in place where you do have to assess the risk. Um, you know, Otherwise, if you don't start now, when by the time we get to artificial general intelligence, uh, it'll be too late. So what we have to do is try and work out what is appropriate. And you know, one of our big debates at the moment is what is proportionate. Uh, uh, in all of this. And, you know, a lot of people, there are people who believe that any form of regulation stifles innovation. I'm a believer in uh, regulation, proportionate regulation, that makes sure that developers have some certainty around what they do. So actually, that stimulates innovation. And I think there's a bit of a philosoph philosophical divide. Um, but increasingly, I think when people talk about AI, they do think that some guardrails are appropriate. I want to advocate for some of the companies that are being picked on or challenged in the landscape. Is this regulation just for that or for them? Because it's like if I'm meta and I say I'm getting into AI and then the UK parliament comes in and says, well, we've got an AI bill. It's almost like you're putting handcuffs on me. 
um, and, and it's not just Meta, it's Google and, and Microsoft, et cetera. Is that what this really is? Or if I may say, it's probably the attitude of a few years ago, the kind of move fast and break things uh, type of philosophy. And we all know that that got us some places, but it also got us some detriment as well. And, you know, I've no doubt we're going to be talking about online safety and so on. And we don't want the same to happen with AI. We want to anticipate some of the issues uh, that are going to be associated with AI. So it is it is right that we should be looking at this. And I think increasingly those big tech companies now recognize that some form of guardrail, some form of regulation is appropriate. You know, if you hear people like Brad Smith, you uh, uh, you listen to Sam Altman, you know, all of those guys, uh, they're beginning to, to understand the need for it. And, you know, now when you talk to Meta, uh, uh, they're also concerned to make sure that there is some kind of uh, regulation. The big issue is how far do you go in terms of the smaller companies? What do you regulate? How do you regulate? And in the case of online safety, you know what impact there is on freedom of speech, for instance. One of the real questions that I have about this is what is unique about AI, because historically it would be almost unheard of that technologists would approach the government and say, hey, you need to regulate us. But with AI, as Tim, as you pointed out, that's beginning to happen. So what is causing this very unusual dynamic where folks are saying, hey, government, you need to, you need to regulate us? I absolutely understand why there is a little bit of bafflement if you don't know what the potential of AI is. It's partly about the black box nature of AI, the neural networks, the fact that uh, they can make decisions and predictions uh, which impact on you without reasons being completely understood. Uh, and that's a machine making those decisions and you can't interrogate it in, a, in an appropriate kind of a way unless you design it ahead of the game. Uh, and it's the autonomous nature of AI, too, where you may not have full control over what the uh, AI is actually doing in terms of what what it's deciding, what data it's actually ingesting. And, you know, now we've got these large language models that has become particularly acute because we don't actually know what all the data that has been ingested by these large language models is. And, you know, as I said a little bit earlier, what we're trying to do is anticipate some of the problems where AGI, artificial and general intelligence, would have a you know greater degree of autonomy, a greater power uh, in terms of prediction and decision making, uh, and if you like, just uh, content uh, creation uh, uh, than anything we've ever seen before. And so we do have to make sure uh, that there is some form of uh, ethical uh, set of guardrails around that. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit the subscribe button at the bottom of our website so that we can send you our newsletter and you will be notified of upcoming shows. What is driving this request for regulation from technologists? Is it, is it fear? Or is it fear that the government may take control? Is it fear of their own creation, the AI creation? 
I know the narrative is somewhat polarized about AI, but you know, you've seen a thousand technologists write in. Uh, you've seen uh, uh, people like OpenAI and Anthropic and so on. You know, uh, uh, all join in with the, uh, uh, the 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 view that uh, we should even. I mean, you know, I don't actually accept that, but a lot of technologists were asking for a moratorium on further development. Ending regulation. Now, I think you know. I maybe I got a greater faith in politicians' ability to move fast uh, and regulate rather than break things. But uh, you know, I do believe that there is a possibility of fairly quickly moving to at least standards, so that we can get sets of standards for testing, sets of standards for risk and impact assessment, testing uh, standards for uh, uh, continuous monitoring. Uh, and even on an international basis. Uh, and so get that uh, in place, whether or not it's obligatory, make it part of our technology culture uh, and in both sides of the Atlantic. And I think we, you know, we would have a great achievement there. One of the things that I think about, if we jump uh, just a few years into the future, there's going to be a case where you're going to have to litigate AI. And the reason that I believe a lot of these entrepreneurs are raising their hands and are saying, hey, challenges, 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 is because their lawyers are telling them, hey, we need to CYA uh, all of this. And one way to do that is to go and not lobby, not not don't send your lawyers in saying this is what we suggest. But you as the entrepreneur say, I don't know what's going on. If something happens, I, all, I, all, I, I basically created some, some basis of identification from the jump. And so you can't, when you have to go litigate the AI, your, your founders are removed from that because they're going to say, hey, I told you I didn't know what was going to happen. And this could have massive, deadly implications. I love that. The, the U.S. approach to uh, this kind of thing is litigation, which establishes standards, is establishes norms. And, you know, when you have people like the National Institute for uh, Standards and Technology setting standards as they are doing for risk management and so on, that becomes a norm. And therefore, it's people are going to litigate over this and say to the technologists, look, guys, you didn't conform to the risk management framework set out by the National Institute. And so they're going to be liable uh, in in the court. Now, that's not the way uh, the Europeans tend to do it. We tend to try and regulate in advance of uh, this kind of litigious uh, behavior, if you like. But they're both valid and they both lead to the creation of standards uh, which can be common. And I'm a great believer in trying to converge as much as possible on these standards so that then technologists can get on with their job. You know, they can feel quite confident that this is what they need to do to avoid a black box, or this is what they need to do to make sure they're not developing high-risk AI systems. You know, so we've got um, a lot of potential there. So to that extent, I'm actually quite optimistic. Can you elaborate on uh, the phrase you just used, high-risk AI systems? What qualifies, what pushes uh, the application of this technology into that category? Well, let me take a U.S. example, Michael. Uh, you know, a lot of cities in the U.S., Oakland, Portland, Chicago, have banned the use of uh, live facial recognition cameras, uh, AI-powered live, live facial recognition uh, cameras and uh, uh, or systems, uh, and rightly so, in my view, pending a proper 
uh, a kind of overview, an ethical framework for the deployment of this kind of technology, because it's seen as continuous surveillance, basically, of our citizens. Um, now, for me, that is high risk. And what you need to do before you install those cameras, before the police install them or the security services, what we need to do is have an assessment of the impact and uh, how much people need to consent to that being uh, uh, deployed, uh, the biases which may be inherent in uh, the processing of the uh, the system, you know, for instance, the racial prejudice that might be inherent in the data sets when they, uh, 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 you know, in a sense, pick out particular people from the crowd, uh, all that kind of thing. That, for me, is high risk and requires a greater degree of impact assessment before you deploy. And that is the kind of regulation that I think is very appetite. And it's, of course, what the EU are adopting currently. I want to shift a little bit towards uh, something that is just as important, and it's the online safety bill. Uh, my question here is, I feel like I'm being over-regulated. I'm being regulated on AI. I'm being regulated on all of my terms of service, on all the websites that I now maintain that I have to enforce. Got to make the internet a safer place. I have to control the users and control my content. I mean, what do we expect these tech companies to really become? Because it seems like a lot of the legislation that you're you're proposing is is just telling me that I have to follow the rules and I can't think outside the box. Thus, I can't bring you uh, the devices or the services that I want to. I have to follow the line and and pretty much we're all going to look. We're all going to be using the same devices, the same uh, websites because. It's going to cost too much to, to to think outside the box. Having spent uh, the last two or three years working uh, on the online safety bill, uh, which <clears throat> hopefully will become an act, um, you know, in September, because uh, we're very, very nearly there. I think we've managed to work our way through without uh, uh, over-regulating and without impinging too much on freedom of expression. Because what we're really doing now, we're really regulating for harms against children. And everybody would agree that what you don't want is minors uh, suffering harms. So you've got to define those harms and make sure the platforms adhere to that. Uh, so they don't expose those children to harms. And the second thing is illegal behavior. And our uh, uh, principle has been what is illegal offline should be illegal online. And that's been the principle we've tried to establish. Everything else is okay as long as everybody knows when they get on a platform, this is what the terms of service provide. So if you're in a, a sort of uh, a, a very free speech environment and that's the terms of service, uh, like parts of Reddit, for instance, the community uh, that, it, you know, is quite explicit about the things they talk about for adults, that's fine. Uh, we've also arranged it so that it's obligatory to have certain user uh, empowerment tools. So if you don't want to see particular content, you have the right to press a button and say, that's the kind of content I don't want to see. And that's freedom of choice for the citizen, basically. So we've tried to uh, work our way through in all of this without uh, uh, being too negative about uh, you know, uh, new innovations and platforms, and also without impinging too much on the smaller platforms. Now, you know, we have a debate about whether you should uh, uh, regulate those who are risky 
as opposed to those who are large. And we haven't yet quite resolved that. You know, at the moment, we're regulating the larger platforms, not the risky platforms. Now, I believe that even smaller platforms can be quite risky. Um, but that's a debate to be had continuously. You know, we'll see how the bill works out in future uh, if we don't uh, uh, manage to establish risk as the basis for regulation. But nevertheless, that's about the last remaining uh, uh, debate that we've got, because what we're regulating is the functions of the systems. Uh, we're not regulating content so much. It's how the amplification of the algorithm works and so on. Really important stuff. Again, we're back to the black box. We mustn't have those black boxes. But the algorithms are inextricably linked with the content. So how do you regulate the container without getting into the messy set of uh, judgment calls for the content that is being delivered? It's all about transparency, as, as indeed, and it, this is the common link with AI regulation as well. It's all about transparency. What we ask is for the platforms to uh, uh, show their risk assessments uh, uh, of their platforms and the technology and the algorithms they're using. Uh, and then the regulator basically uh, 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 sees what they say about the uh, impact, because that's what the platforms do. So it's not as if the, it's not as if, an, except in extreme cases, uh, where the regulator steps in and actually looks inside the algorithm uh, uh, or gets a, a te technological report on the algorithm. By and large, it's a lot about self-reporting. It's a lot about saying these are the harms we discovered. And also, we want to see researcher access as well. So there is some independent third-party validation. But it's not a very heavy hand, actually. A lot of it, this, this is being done by codes of practice. Uh, and so you just expect people to follow the codes, and and uh, and it's they're, they're, you know it's mainly good good practice. I mean, we've got some pretty big companies already starting to follow the codes. Uh, just the other day, uh, Meta announced that they're open sourcing one of their large language models, Llama. And I'm curious your take on that. Like, is that what you want to see from the industry, or is that still just another press release? I think that's a slightly different thing, strangely enough, um, because you you could say that an open source AI, a powerful open source AI is like opening a Pandora's box on, you know, a very powerful creature. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I feel quite nervous about that. Uh, I mean, the other, the chat G, uh, GPT, GPT-4 and, and uh, Ember, uh, you know, which is the platform on which um, BARD is based, uh, they're not open source. And so, uh, uh, you know, being able to utilize uh, an open source like Llama, I, I, I have my doubts about um, I mean, it, that to me is quite high risk. And I think what I would like to see is a full impact assessment uh, from uh, Meta uh, about that. And I think I think we'd all be greatly reassured if we could see that. But I, 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 I'm quite nervous about the uh, the ability to build, you know, quite malign systems off the back of an open source AI as powerful as Llama. I mean, let's face it, the only people who can build uh, 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 these massive uh, generative AI systems are those who, A, have, you know, extra compute power and massive data sets. 
Um, and so, you know, this is only a limited number of big, big tech companies who can do that. And therefore, being able to piggyback by, on an open source uh, 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 system like that is quite something for any tech player. So at the end of the day, what is the, the, the problem with these mega players and their AI? Are you concerned that there is a an over-consolidation of power and control and therefore impact on society? In terms of ethical regulation, I mean, uh, you know, the big tech companies, they for, for quite a long time, they have responded. You know, we've, we've talked about responsible AI. Uh, uh, they have dialogues all the time with uh, uh, politicians like myself. So I think there's a general acceptance that there is a need for ethical behavior. Uh, and indeed, now there's a growing acceptance of the need for uh, uh, regulation, uh, or at least for standards. <clears throat> I think what is really going to be in dispute is whether or not there should be greater uh, uh, control over the competition aspect. And what by that, I mean, opening up competition, because, you know, as I said earlier, with the execute power and the um, huge data sets that are needed currently in the current form of uh, machine learning, it may change in the future. But at the moment, you know, it, it, it means that you're concentrating power in the hands of Microsoft and uh, Meta, uh, Apple, uh, Google, and so on. And, you know, we need to make sure that they actually don't behave in, a, in a, any kind of monopo monopolistic way. I mean, I, I'm afraid I'm a science fiction reader. And, um, you know, when I look back at uh, William Gibson and uh, things like Neuromancer, uh, they were competing AI systems, but very limited uh, AI systems. And I don't want to get to a situation where, for instance, we have uh, the same situation uh, we have in app stores, you know, where there's a very limited choice of app stores. I don't want to have a very limited choice of AI systems simply because there are only four or five, uh, uh, the fangs of only four or five companies that can actually build these things. We've got a very interesting question from a friend of both uh, Mike and myself. Uh, Yav is over at Harvard Business School, and he's asking the question, is there a concern that the regulation in the UK and the EU will slow down innovation within the jurisdiction? So already AI development within the US and China is much further ahead, and regulation in the UK should make it worse, right? Actually not. I think that it's going to create a certain confidence uh, in uh, the ability to do this stuff. Don't forget that if you add the UK to Europe, you know, you're well over 450 million consumers. And if you then establish norms, um, and you will have the same norms in the States, believe me, the standards will be virtually identical at the end of the day. That's what developers will want. That's the market that developers will want. They don't, they will, they will be uh, very silly if they start trying to develop AI, which are effectively black box, because they'll find it's not when business, when 
business and government and so on procure AI, they won't procure uh, black box systems if you don't get kite marked or certificated as being a conforming AI system for a consumer, for instance, you won't be able to sell your product to the consumer. And the same is going to be true of Tencent and Alibaba and all the Chinese companies as well. And in fact, of course, the Chinese government have uh, adopted standards uh, or are adopting standards for generative AI systems themselves. They may not apply it to their own government systems, but that's not the uh, commercial aspect. The commercial aspect is both in data and in AI, private Chinese companies, uh, such as they are, will need to conform. And when they export or sell their services or systems abroad, they will have to conform. So we have another really interesting question from Twitter, and this is from Elizabeth Shaw, who says, how well would using the UK harms bill as a work as a template for regulating the use of AI? I think it's going to be a very, very different story um, for uh, AI regulation because it won't involve anything like the difficulties that we've had over freedom of expression. Because what we've absolutely had to do is try and make sure that we don't um, uh, uh, close down free speech uh, on our social media platforms. And therefore, we've had to be very, very particular and quite complicated in the way we do it. I think that AI uh, regulation is going to be much more straightforward than that. It'll be simply, look, before you institute AI uh, systems or procure them or adopt them, or develop them, and depending on you know what stage you get to, you've got to carry out. It's rather like the data uh, protection impact assessment. You've got to carry out that assessment. If it turns out that it's high risk, these are the kinds of things you've got to do in terms of transparency, uh, further work on uh, bias uh, uh, elimination, further work on uh, explanation, uh, uh, and being very clear about liability in these circumstances. So, you know, this is going to be a set of requirements. These are the standards you adopt. They could be those from the International Standards Organization. They could be those that NIST has put forward or IEEE, so on. Those are all coming together. It's going to be much more straight. It's going to be much more like product liability. I mean, you know, we already have uh, uh, product liability laws in the UK, which are pretty clear. Um, we have um, health and safety laws, which are even clearer, um, uh, and so does Europe. In fact, ours are based on uh, those that we had when we were in the EU. And so that's much more like product liability in a much more straightforward kind of a way. But we've got to make sure that uh, in the way that uh, Hugh was talking earlier, we can't have developers say, no, no, that was an AI system, nothing to do with me. You know, it's been running around on its own. I don't take liability for that. You know, so it's, that's a really important bit of uh, liability establishment that we need. The whole concept of AI Regulation today is something that I feel like is very narrow to where we are today. Like as a future thinker, one of the biggest skill sets that we all possess is being able to separate from today, from tomorrow, and then from tomorrow to like 10 years. So let's just say for the sake of this, 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 this discussion, you, every, everything you're working on goes exactly as it, as, as planned. What does the vision of tomorrow and even 10 years uh, in, into the future look like 
um, if all these things are running as they are being designed. One of the things that's most difficult is to future-proof our regulation. and But that's exactly what we need to do, both in online safety and in terms of the general AI uh, approach. And I believe that actually at the end of the day, what we need to do is have a system where AI is our servant, not our master. And in 10 years time, that's got to be the case. And that's what I'm working towards so that it's a tool that we use in our employment. It helps us do our jobs. It doesn't substitute for us uh, 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 all the time. It's something that improves the quality of our lives uh, in everything we do now, because I'm an optimist about the AI, about AI, you know, I think it's like electricity or, um, you know, uh, 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 the printing press, you know, it's a, it's a beneficial technology that we've got to grab with both hands, but we've got to do it very clearly and knowing, uh, what the risks are. Lord, Tim, you've got some big responsibilities. I'm going to be looking toward you in 10 years. If AI has replaced me and it's taken my job and I'm trying to figure out, you know, what I'm going to do in society. But because you're here, hopefully that won't be a scenario that I'm living in. Uh, I don't unfortunately, any chance of you being substituted here, if I may say. Yeah. <laughs> right. I love that. I'm going to take that and put yeah. that on my resume, if you don't mind. But right. Good to see you. Likewise, uh, thank you all. It's been a pleasure for today. I do. Un I do have to run, unfortunately, but uh, this is a great conversation. Thanks, Q. Nice Take care. Bye bye. Tim, when it comes to this kind of regulation, what are the biggest challenges in balancing the competing interests? For example, technological project versus innovation, which you alluded to earlier? I think it's really approach to risk. And I think that, you know, there's going to be inevitably a difference of approach um, uh, in different parts of the world as to what is considered high risk. Um, and I think that's going to be where some of the debate and the argument is going to be. What, what do I need to do um, if, you know, you determine that something is high risk, because I might have a different opinion uh, about that. And, you know, I think we've got to get some, some view about that. Now, it's quite interesting. I think in the States, you have, you know, very strong views about civil liberties, about um, surveillance and the rights of privacy and so on. It's more about data in our case, because obviously your social media companies, in a sense, make their money from uh, data. You know, it's, it, 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 it's, it's that kind of um, uh, approach that's been traditional. Um, so, but we we push back against that quite heavily with GDPR. So there are going to be cultural differences on this, and I think uh, that's going to be the big challenge. Um, uh, uh, you know, and then of course on weaponry, uh, which we haven't touched on yet, that is where there's going to be even bigger debate because you know lethal autonomous weapons. For a start, you have to define what an autonomous weapon is. And you have to uh, decide whether or not that's going to put you at a competitive disadvantage internationally, um, unless you, if you do decide to limit the use of them. But at the end of the day, and and also the whole business about whether it's offensive or defensive, and whether it's appropriate to use it defensively rather than offensively. Um, but you know, and then again, if you use a, a, an autonomous weapon in relation to nuclear weapons, that's even more high risk. 
uh, uh, than you can possibly imagine. So there are a lot of questions there, um, which I think we, you know, we we need to resolve. But we do need to start resolving them. Honestly, how practical is this? Even when you talk about lethal autonomous weapons and the ability to get countries to agree on standards, obviously that's far more complex than regulating Google, Facebook, or any other company. Yes, it is. But of course, we already have international humanitarian law, which applies uh, across the battlefield. Um, and so what you need to do is make sure that international uh, human rights law actually is fit for purpose and that it does cover those kinds of autonomous weapons, already things like drones, for instance, um, that are that are on the battlefield that may have quite a high degree of autonomy. So uh, we've got to make sure that those are covered and that the uh, and that we know when it's appropriate to have human in the loop. You know, it may be that certain weapons uh, must have a human in the loop; otherwise, there is a breach of international humanitarian law. So we've got some of the tools for this. You know, I'm, uh, you know, we're not in wild west country here. We can we can move towards agreement on that. We have an interesting question from Twitter, and this is from Chris Peterson, who asks. He says, "Has Brexit complicated the regulatory picture or hurt the UK's ability to attract people and companies in the AI space?" I think, in the medium term, that is already happening. Basically. It is much more difficult now um, to attract um, uh, and move people around, you know, even the high skilled ones. We do have exceptions for high skilled uh, uh, technologists, but the visa charges are eye watering uh, compared to many other countries. And of course, between European um, members of the European Union, you can travel visa free, you can work anywhere within the 27, you know, so it's a real, it's, it's a real problem for us. And of course, I would much prefer us to be regulating on the basis of 28 rather than 27. But you know, that's history now, I'm afraid. And what we have to do is try and um, uh, come to uh, agreement with the EU about making sure that we do have quite a high degree of convergence. Um, in our regulatory systems. It would be crazy for us as a country of no more than 70 million um, to start trying to establish completely different rules from the EU, who, who now have begun to really establish a suite of rules relating to AI, social media, uh, digital markets, and so on. We mustn't diverge too much. Otherwise, you know, why should American companies, for instance, come and establish here when they, they went to Paris or Berlin, they'd have a bigger market. They could attract, um, uh, you know, all the postgraduates that they would need from uh, universities across the EU uh, far more easily. So, you know, we've got to make sure these barriers to uh, uh, skills and, and jobs and so on are much lower than they are at the moment. I know that you said earlier that your focus is not on the content so much as on things like the algorithms. Yes. But when we start to talk about uh, misinformation, disinformation, and even in the case of, of large language models, hallucinations, where there's no ill intent, but the machine simply gives you an incorrect answer with absolute 100% confidence. 
how does how does all of that factor into the regulation, the regula- regulatory kind of framework? You can't is the answer. All you can do is there are two things you can do. You can be very advertent to um, uh, how the system amplifies uh, information, misinformation, disinformation, and therefore what you've got to try and do is uh, make sure that the uh, media, the social media platforms are very conscious about that, um, and that they have provenance checking systems, fact checking systems, and so on. I wouldn't make that compulsory, but uh, I think it should be part of your terms of service that uh, uh, you, uh, where possible, you try and uh, check the provenance of uh, the sources. Uh, if you're a social media platform putting out, say, public health information that's misleading and so on. So you've got you've got that. Um, and the other is you've got to make sure your population is equipped, that they're sufficiently media and digitally literate um, to make sure that they've got at least some idea of what is being fed to them. Now, because I don't think there's any easy solution to disinformation and misinformation. It's something we're going to have to live with. You know, okay, we might recognize whether there's a bot uh, uh, being pushing out, uh, you know, whether it's an inauthentic, what they call an inauthentic account. Uh, uh, that's, you know, different story. But the ordinary pushing out of misleading in, uh, 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 information, I mean, that is something where citizens we have to have a, you know, uh, we have to be a bit more sophisticated than we are now. But, you know, let's face it, there are still many people in your country who believe that the election was stolen. And uh, I'm afraid, you know, how do you how do you treat that? Is that disinformation, disinformation? Many people believe that to be true. We have another interesting question on Twitter from Chris Peterson, who comes back and on the subject of an educated populace, and I think this also gets directly to you to the point you were just making, yep. he says this, listening to Lord Clement Jones makes me wish pretty much anyone in, quote, he says, our upper house, the Senate, had his, not your knowledge, understanding, and perspective in the U.S. And I guess as a rhetorical question, how can we expect the population to be educated when, frankly, our own politicians uh, seem to know very little about the subjects in which they're discussing. I am very heartened by the fact that people like Chuck Schumer, for instance, the majority leader in the Senate, uh, is very interested in this subject, and he's got a working group. And I think that uh, you know, senior Democrats in in uh, Congress they want to see legislation along these lines, and it could easily be bipartisan because, quite frankly, you know, AI, which is black box, affects all the population, and I, I believe there's a, a great room for uh, bipartisan agreement on that kind of thing. Um, and of course, the White House itself, we've seen the blueprint for a digital um, AI bill of rights. Um, uh, we've seen the uh, White House even today, I believe, who've got uh, all the big tech uh, CEOs in today to talk to them about uh, 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 testing um, and getting their commitment to uh, particular uh, testing of AI systems before they're put into use. So uh, I think there's quite a lot happening there. Um, it, we may not have the answers, but I think that uh, both in Brussels and London and uh, in DC, I think there's a growing understanding of what we need to do and what the issues are. In that case, what advice do you have for 
policymakers and for politicians who want to address these issues in a substantive way. Our prime minister, having produced proposals which were very weak in the regulatory area earlier on this year in what we call a white paper, now has suggested we convene in London this December, uh, November, December, an AI safety conference, uh, an internationally, a global conference. Now, I very, very much support that. So I would say, look, come together, bring, you know, let's involve the Chinese uh, government as well. Let's bring in uh, uh, Chinese uh, technologists and uh, uh, let's bring uh, uh, EU leaders together. Let's bring uh, congressional leaders together as well. Come to London and let's try and converge on a, a particular set of solutions. Maybe it, we won't be able to agree on how much we need to regulate uh, 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 across the board, but what we can agree on is what kind of standards for safety, for uh, freedom from bias, for uh, uh, transparency, uh, accountability, and so on, we need to uh, put into effect. I think that's really where we should be going. What about advice for uh, business people and technologists who are creating these technologies? I think what we do is we keep the dialogue open. I, I talk a lot to technologists, and I know that this idea that you know uh, some governments have that innovation is the enemy of uh, 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 that, that innovation is the enemy of regulation and vice versa is is wrong. I mean, most technologists I talk to are just keen for us to get on with it, to get some guardrails around this, so that they can get on with uh, you know understanding what they need to do to conform. Uh, to regulation, and therefore, you know, uh, their job as developers and adopters is made is made much easier. Um, and I think they breathe a sigh of relief, and especially if we got some sort of international agreement on standards. As we finish up, Tim, any final thoughts that you would like to share? We were all a bit surprised by the speed at which ChatGPT, GPT-4, and then BARD all came thundering down the track. Now we've had Llama in the last couple of days. Um, the speed of development is unbelievable. But at the same time, the narrative has been very, very confused. You know, we've had a thousand technologists on one side telling us that uh, we're doomed, more or less, and the other side saying, no, no, it's great. Another thousand the other day saying it's all great. So I think people might take, um, you know, uh, uh, might find it quite difficult to understand uh, what the agenda is. But what it has done is made politicians think very, very carefully about what we need to do. It's heightened consciousness and it's made us think about the future and it's made us think that things like artificial general intelligence are coming along much quicker than we ever thought. And that is only to the good. You know, it's really made sure uh, that we're all, uh, you know, we've got to speed up. We've got to, we've got to get, get going uh, and make sure that we do the right thing for our, our citizens. You sound very optimistic. I'm always optimistic until I fail, <laughs> um, because I believe that if you don't throw a lot of energy into this, uh, you will fail. Because you know, a lot of people say, "No, we don't need this," uh, because you know, you'll stifle innovation. Oh, we can't have this because the Chinese will get ahead of us, you know, and so on and so forth. I think there are a lot of spurious arguments out there. 
uh, and I don't want them to prevail. So I spend quite a lot of energy trying to make sure that uh, we adopt practical solutions. And there are a lot of practical solutions out there. And I think, strangely enough, we've just demonstrated it with our online safety bill, that it is possible, even in a really complicated world, uh, to do stuff, to regulate, and also, to some extent, future-proof as well. Well, congratulations on moving your online safety bill forward. And with that, we're out of time. And I want to say a huge thank you to Lord Tim Clement Jones of the House of Lords for taking time to be with us today. Tim, thank you so much. Huge pleasure, Michael. And I hope you'll come back another time. Definitely. <laughs> you won't keep me away. And a huge thank you to our great audience. You guys ask the best questions, very smart, intelligent, sophisticated audience, and we love that. Now, before you go, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit the subscribe button at the bottom of our website so that we can send you our newsletter and you will be notified of upcoming shows. Check out CXOTalk.com. Have a great day, everybody, and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye.